Revelation 17, I mean, if you have notes, uh, try to keep them for next week. I'll, I'll print some more off as well. Again, we're, we're probably only going to get through the, the very first three points there tonight. But chapter 17, we've just finished the, the last of the judgments, the vile, the bold judgments, and we've seen the wrath of God poured out upon mankind. And it's, it's intense. And what we see and what we will see, as I'll allude to here in just a second tonight, uh, what we see is the danger of worldly seduction, uh, being too much like the world. Um, you know, over the past several weeks, we've seen intense judgment, when you think about it, in the book of Revelation. Uh, we've seen people hiding themselves in caves, begging and pleading for mountains and rocks to fall upon them. People are being tormented by demonic locusts and by fire, by sulfur. At the end of chapter 16, we saw that these large 100-plus-pound hailstones are pouring out upon mankind and falling from the heavens on people. And really, in light of what we've talked about the past few chapters, it leads us to a critical question. Here, here's the critical question I want to kind of start with tonight and then leave with tonight. How do we worship God in wrath? How do we worship God in wrath? Because when we think of God sometimes, and I, I think I alluded to this a few weeks ago, but when we think of God, we don't necessarily think of a God of wrath. We think of a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of love, a God of kindness. And it's hard to sometimes wrap our mind around a God that is also a God of judgment, a God that pours out his wrath. And really, it's really challenging to fully comprehend the wrath of God. And what's even more interesting or challenging in this whole picture of Revelation, back in chapter 6, we saw Christians who had been slain for the word of God, crying out for God to show his judgment, to pour out his wrath upon those that dwell upon the earth. They were asking God to do this, and in view of worshiping God as he does this, how, how, do, we, how do we worship God in this wrath? And this is challenging to think about it. In the very middle of the destruction, the wrath of God being poured out, we have scenes from heaven, and really they are songs of worship. Just, I want to show you a couple. Back in chapter 15, verse number 3, the Bible says, And they sing the song of Moses. So in the middle of it all, we have this view from heaven where they are singing a song of praise, of worship to God in heaven. They sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, uh, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. In chapter 16, Verse number five, and I heard the angel of the water say, thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be because thou hast judged thus. Verse number seven, and I heard another out of the altar say, even so, Lord, God almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Even in the midst of all the destruction, worship is still going on around the throne. And we even see it later on in chapter 19, verse number one, after Babylon the Great has been destroyed and that system of the world is destroyed, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, talking about his judgments upon mankind. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of the servants at her hand. Again, it's hard to comprehend worshiping because of wrath. And before we dig into this chapter, I, I just want you to understand a couple of things. How do we even do that? Well, there's three very important things that we have to understand. First of all, we have to start with a high view of God. Write that down. 
we have to start with the high view of God. What I'm talking about, this speaks to what we saw back in chapter 15. It speaks of God's greatness, of his goodness. And what we learn throughout Revelation and through chapter 15 specifically is that God is sovereign, which means he is in control over all things. God is feared by all. He is glorified above all. He is holy in his attributes. He is righteous in his ways. He is loving towards all creation. And in order to really fully comprehend God, listen, in order to fully comprehend God, we have to start with the high view of God. And what I've seen in my own life sometimes is that my view of God isn't that high. I don't view him for the eternal being, the eternal creature, the sovereign creature that he is, the one that rules over all things, that is in control over all things. So the first thing we have to do is start with the high view of God. Second thing we have to do is this. We then have to move to a humble view of man. I think what we do sometimes is we put man higher than what man needs to be. In the sense of, here's what I mean. All of these bowls, these vials, these judgments from Revelation 16 and previous chapters, along with the seal and the trumpets, and the visions, the letters, they graphically depict something very important. They graphically depict the depravity of man. Man has fallen. Mankind has rebelled against the holy God. And the wickedness of men and women upon the earth, and, and the thing that I think I've said many times over that, that really stands out to me, and really it breaks your heart when you think about it, with all of the judgment that is being rained down upon the earth in the end times here in Revelation when John has given us this vision, there are still hundreds of thousands and probably even millions that say, you know what? Forget you, God, basically. And they don't repent. They fail to repent. They fail to turn from their wickedness and see that this is a supernatural being that is allowing this to happen, and yet they still choose to reject Christ. You see, no matter how often God gave them opportunity to repent, so many of them still rebelled. And I wrote this down earlier today, but the measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. The measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. Think about this. If you sin against a log, <laughs> you're not going to be guilty, right? <laughs> it's a log. If you sin against a man or a woman, then you're going to be absolutely guilty. But ultimately, if you sin against an infinitely holy God, you are infinitely guilty. And we have to understand that we have to have a high view of God. We have to move to a humble view of man. We have created these pedestals that we've put men upon, mankind upon. But mankind at its best is a fallen creature. Because of sin, because of sin that has come over humanity back in the Garden of Eden. But then the third thing, really kind of, again, just understanding of this whole book of Revelation. When we have the right view of God, when we have the right view of man, then it leads us to this. We land on the hope of the gospel. You see, the more I've studied this great book, the more I've realized what it's about. It's, yes, it's about the end times, but it's about the gospel going forward. It's about the gospel continuing to be uh, proclaimed throughout all the world. Revelation speaks of God's love. It speaks of his grace. It, it speaks of his goodness and, and mercy. But Revelation speaks ultimately of the gospel. You see, the gospel is what gives us hope. And when you look at this book, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But the more I've read it and the more I've studied, the more I've found hope in Jesus Christ. And I hope you found hope in Jesus Christ by studying it. And in understanding this, kind of by way of transition, and we'll, we'll kind of close with this here in just a second. But in understanding this, we 
transition into a new section of chapters that once again is extremely applicable to the church and Christians today. C.J. Behaney says in, in his book entitled Worldliness, he says this, Today the greatest challenge facing Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. I think it's, I may have it in your notes, but let me read that again. The greatest challenge today facing Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world. You know, a lot of times we think, well, the world is persecuting us, and, and especially with some of these new laws that are hopefully not going to be signed into, but they might be signed into law, this Equality Act and things like that. You know, it, it's wicked. But sometimes we think, oh, the greatest threat is persecution from the world. But really the greatest th- threat to Christians is seduction by the world, being seduced by the world. Charles Spurgeon, in his day, uh, he, he said words that really are apt to our day. He said this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. He said, put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history, and you will find a little marginal note that says, in this age, people could readily see where the church began and the world ended. But here's the reality where we are today in 2021. The reality is those lines have been blurred. And it's difficult to decipher where the church begins versus where the world ends. What I mean by that is we have blurred the world with the church. There are a lot of churches today that are trying to be so much like the world to appeal to the world, to get more people to come in, that they've crossed the line. And you can't see a distinction. There is no distinction between the world and the church. And sadly, it's in churches like this. There is no distinction between a Christian and an unchristian, a non-Christian. Because we have tried so hard to fit in when Jesus has called us to stand out. And study after study shows that our lifestyles as professing Christians look just like the world around us. You see, we are just as materialistic. We are just as sexually immoral. We are just as self-centered as the world. Many people in the church are no different. No different. And that's harsh, but it's true, isn't it? And I would never do this, but literally, I, I could point out people, not even necessarily in this church, but I've grown up a long time in ministry you know, I've been saved since I was four. My, my dad's been a pastor since I was four and really been in the ministry my whole life. But I've seen so many people uh, growing up in church and you know, going to Bible college and then coming back as a youth pastor and associate and now a pastor. I've seen so many people that played the part of church but were so wicked and so vile outside the church. And again, you wonder why the church has a hard time trying to, to really make an impact and be a light that shines in the community when there's no difference, there's no distinction. You know, I think John is the, the primary writer here in Revelation. He's given us this vision that he got from Jesus. And, and here's the reality that John is trying to help the, the seven different churches there in Asia Minor, but he's really trying to help us as well. And in and, and some of his epistles, in 1 John especially, he, he was very poignant in some of the things that he said. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says that we're supposed to love not the world. Now, I know we have a hard time understanding things sometimes, and that's my sarcasm coming in, but what does love not the world or don't love the world mean? Somebody, somebody explain it to me. Yeah, don't do the things of the world. 
But yet, <laughs> that verse, love not the world or don't love the world or the things in the world, he, he was basically pretty emphatic, period. That's it. You know, he was calling the church to be different. He was calling the church to look different. You know, here's the, here's the reality before I continue on with that passage. Our schedules should look different than the world. Our spending should look different. Our marriages should look different. Our parenting, our purity, our possessions, our love, our lives should all look different from the world, should they not? They should. Not for the sake of being different, but because we love God more than we love this world. So what does it say of us, myself included, when our life doesn't look different than the world? I do love God, though. But if we truly love God the way that he loved us, we would love the things God loves and hate the thing God hates, right? And right after John tells them to, hey, forsake the world, be different, don't love the world, he makes another bold statement. He says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, these are verses that many people have memorized, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Again, that's a poignant verse. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The desires that we often have inside of us have nothing to do with the Spirit who resides within us. Worldliness is one of the key elements that is destroying the modern-day church. The world is passing away, but living for God, living on mission is what lasts. And honestly, that's exactly what we see and what we'll see next week in Revelation 17 and 18. John sees this vision or a picture of the world, the world system, finally passing away, and he, he's writing it down for the church to see. He, he wanted to remind the church that the world and all of the ways of the world are deceptive, dangerous, and ultimately damning, and yet many Christians can't understand that. And I'm not just trying to just bash people tonight. I'm not. I'm saying this because of love, but that's why John tells us, don't love the world or the things of this world, because what he's telling us in 1 John, they're going to destroy you. They're going to ruin your homes, ruin your marriages, ruin your lives. But yet we are so much, and especially in the American culture, we are so consumed with worldliness. We are so consumed with material gain. It doesn't matter who you are. Most of us struggle with that. You know, again, that's, that's just a small part and reason why I want to go on mission trips, but it's more than that. It's more than just going to one place. The whole world needs the gospel. And yet we have so much in America and many of us, we want more. It's what we have is not enough. I need more. I have to have more. And yet there are so many people that have nothing. And really what they need, it's not necessarily more food. They need the spiritual food that we have that we're supposed to give them. You know, I, I, told, I told my wife and I told my, my parents, I, honestly, I would love to, to take four, six, eight mission trips a year just to share the gospel. Because as a preacher, the thing that it does for me, it, it's so difficult in America sometimes. And I'm not trying to make an excuse, but it is so difficult because we have so much. And we're so materialistic that, like, man, I don't need that God stuff. I don't need that gospel stuff. That's junk. I, I, it's, well, I'll, okay, I'll take it, but I'll add it to everything else. You go to a place like that, and I understand, you know, Mike understands this in, in Mexico growing up there. But people that, when, when they really grasp it, man, they get a hold of it. And, and it's almost like their Christianity is different, right? And as a preacher, I mean, you love to see that. You want to just, as you preach the message, you want people to just, just hunger for it and then take it with them. <laughs> you know, church, this is what we need to hear, what John is going to be telling us in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18, what he told the church in 1 John. Uh, again, let me just read him. 
so don't get to mess it up. But love not the world, 1 John 2, 15. Neither the things that are in the world, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You're going to go back to like living on mission. If you want to live on mission, you're going to do God's will. That's what lasts. Living for the world and the world system is not going to last. And what we'll find out, I, I wish, honestly, I wish I had time tonight. I just don't. But what we'll find out is that the world system is very seductive. That they are trying to seduce us. They're trying to seduce our children, our teenagers, uh, young people, adults, into this is what you need. <laughs> no, that's not what you need. And really what we get to is the fact that, you know, which God will you worship? I like what John Piper says. He says, that's the goal of everything that the angels have been revealing to us. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. That's the point of all God's judgments, of God's dealings with the world. All God's plans for history from beginning to end have one goal, to worship God. It's not about worshiping the wealth of Babylon, the, the power of Babylon, the, the pleasures of Babylon. And Babylon is not necessarily referring to the city or the, the entity of Babylon. Babylon is talking about the world system, the political system, the religious system. You don't worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon has fallen. You worship God and God alone. And that's what it's all about. And that, that's really what I want to leave you with tonight. And again, we'll, we'll jump into it next week. But there is no denying that we live in, a day, live in a day where you cannot tell where the world ends and the church begins. And as a Christian, that should break your heart. It should help you look in the mirror, so to speak, and see what in my life is not pleasing to God. What in my life looks more like the world than more like Christ? So what in my life do I need to get rid of? But yeah, we don't think like that. Because I have to work more to gain more, to get more. Why? You know, I, I was even thinking about it uh, the other day with sports. It's, and I love sports. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Nate's playing baseball this year. And uh, it's exciting to, to see that and you know, trying to work with them, trying to, to practice with them. Um, I'm ultra competitive. And I'm trying hard not to like, just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. But one thing Amanda and I have talked about, we have to help each other because it's going to be very easy to just go from one to the next, 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 and that's all we're about. But that's not what we're placing this earth for, to just go from one to the next, 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 next. Is it wrong? No, it's not wrong. But the life that God has given us has been given to us, again, not to live how we want to live, to do what we want to do, the life that God has given us has been given to us to, I think as I told the, the school today, to be a conduit. The love, the grace, the mercy that God has poured into us should be pouring out from us. Again, we should look different than the world. And really, that's the message I want to leave you with tonight. That your life should look different your schedule, your spending, your marriage, your parenting, your purity, your possessions, your love, your lives all should look different, not for the sake of being different, but because you love God. And you don't love the ways and things of this world. As John clearly says and poignantly says, 
if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. But I, but I love God. But how can you love God and love the world at the same time? It's impossible. It's impossible to fully and completely love two things at the same time. And I close with those quotes that I mentioned earlier, but, you know, Mahaney says, the greatest challenge facing Bible-believing American Christians today is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. And C.S. Lewis said this, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, with sex, with ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. But, like an ignorant child, we go our way making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. What he was saying is that we'd rather live in the slums of this world, making mud pies with the world, thinking that's all it is, when God has so much more to offer us, so much more to give us. And yet we choose to, I'm going to make mud pies, when nothing against mud pies, but there's so much greater things out there in this world. But I guess my challenge to you tonight, it's not really where I intended to go, but this is where God wanted us to go. As a church, we should look different. We should live, live differently. We should act differently. We should love differently. Again, all of your life should be different. Your marriages, your spending, your habits, your parenting, your purity, your possessions, all those things. And you know, even as a parent, with whether you have boys or girls, I mean, that, that's another thing too, because your kids are going to be they're going to be wanting to follow the mold of the world, and you have to do what's right as a parent, even if it offends them, even if they don't like it, even if you're not their best friend at the time. I mean, we've got to get beyond that sometimes. Honestly, we have to because, you know what, I, there's a lot of things that, just honestly, I, I couldn't stand with my parents when they put their foot down on certain things. And I look back, and I'm, Mom, Dad, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for protecting me. But yet we have too many people in churches like this that I don't want to, I don't want to upset my kids, so I'm just going to give in to them and let them do whatever they want. How foolish. How absolutely foolish. Exactly. And again, that's, that's, that's the truth that I want you to get. That's the truth that I want you to get to understand that we have to be different. A church should look different. Christians should look different. Parents should look different. If you're truly saved, if you're a child of God. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be dismissed.